Um, it's my privilege this morning to introduce Mark Hockley to you. Mark's parents, Wayne and Peg, just for you who are newcomers, um, they raised this fine gentleman. And uh, Maddie, his wife, are Rick and Barb Chanuski's daughter, so connections here. Anyways, Mark is involved with Next Generations at Calvary Baptist Church in Gravenhurst. So he feeds lots of mosquitoes in the spring. So he's waiting for that time of season again, right? Can't wait. Anyways, I don't want to distract because I believe God has been really present here this morning. So I just want to pray for Mark as he opens up ancient words. He's going to be speaking about another very influential man, Nicodemus. Father, as Mark opens your word, may you just go before him in power and in the spirit of your grace. And would you speak into our hearts in such a real way that we can't do anything but be all for Christ. Whatever stage and the journey we are, Lord, would you speak to us and transform us so your name would be glorified and that the lion and the lamb would be real to all of us. In Jesus' name, amen. God be with you. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much, Glenn. It is an honor and a privilege to be back with you. It is always an honor and a privilege to come home. It was a blessing to worship with you, to pray with you, to watch believers be baptized. And I'm excited and humbled to have the chance to open God's word with you. So let's open to John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. I want to pray again, and then we're going to dive into this text. Lord, I just pray that you would move mightily um, here today as we open your word. God, we've seen you move in incredible ways already. God, we are so grateful to see you moving, to see you working, and God, I pray that that would just um, continue. God, that people um, wouldn't see me, but they would see you and you alone, God, through your word. And God, we beg today that this would not just be something that we would do, God, but that you would open our hearts, God, that you would open our eyes to be changed by your gospel, your good news. And so we pray these things in your name. Amen. We are going to be continuing in your series in the Gospel of John, and we are talking today about being born again. And so basically, we're going to break the text down into four different sections. We're going to first look at what God requires. Then we are going to look at what God has done. We are going to look at the core problem that humanity faces and will face um, as long as this world exists. And then we are going to look at the gospel for Christians, and that's how we're going to wrap up this morning. But we're going to start by reading God's word. I always tell our church there's nothing better that we can do than to read God's word together. It's always tempting. As a pastor, like, I could fit five more minutes of stuff in, and yet there's nothing better to do than read God's word this morning together. Let's start at verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born is flesh is flesh, and that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you a teacher of Israel? And yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is already not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed." But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And so let's start with a little bit of context quickly, right? We see Nicodemus coming, and he's a Pharisee. Many of you are familiar with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were very zealous for religious and ritual purity according to the Mosaic Law. And the Mosaic Law is those laws that you read about at the start of the Old Testament. And then they added to those laws because they had a desire to go keep the laws that God had given And we see Jesus clash over and over again with the Pharisees, and it really comes down to this. The problem with the Pharisees is that they changed their behavior, but they did it in their own strength, and it was not out of a heart that was changed by God. And this is Jesus' problem with the Pharisees. And then very quickly we get to verse 3, and we see what God requires. What does God require of you? Truly, truly, I say to you, you must be born again. This is what needs to happen in order that you would see the kingdom of God. This is what must happen for you to be with God. And it's funny when you read this verse, I would encourage you to look at it closely because it feels like Nicodemus comes to Jesus and Jesus just completely ignores Nicodemus and goes in a different direction, right? Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he's appearing to give him some sort of compliment, right? Maybe it looks like a straight up compliment. Maybe it looks like one of those compliments that's really a question where he's kind of asking him to confirm what he's saying. But regardless, if you look closely at the text, I want you to see how Nicodemus responds or Jesus responds to Nicodemus. 
Jesus, when he responds to Nicodemus, he matches one impossibility with another impossibility. So he's saying, just as it's impossible for me to do all these things unless I'm from God, so it is impossible to see the kingdom of God unless you are born again. He did not ignore Nicodemus. He answered his question emphatically. And this produces naturally the question in us, what does it mean to be born again? The phrase to be born again, literally if you translate it, means to be born from above. That's what it means to be born again. We get another clue back in John chapter 1, which I believe you've already studied If you remember this from John chapter 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. When we are born again, we become children of God, and that work is not through us, but it's through the work of God. God becomes our Father. He's the one that gives us life. That's how we're born from above. 1 Peter 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His mercy, He has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Did you catch that? The work to be born again is not through us. It's through him. It's through God. And so what does it mean to be born again? It means that we are given new life, right? New spiritual life, not through anything that we have done, but through God. And we are becoming a child of God. We are given spiritual life. If you look at the next few verses, Jesus is basically going to get into this idea about the difference between existence and life, because they're very different. Right? If you guys, you guys remember Colossians 1, do you remember what it says in Colossians 1? We learn in Colossians 1 that we were created and that we are sustained, we are given an existence because of Jesus. But we only have life when we are with God, when we are his child, when our heart is made new. And the question is, how does that happen And this is the question that Nicodemus asks in verse 4. And then Jesus gives him the answer in verse 5. And so we're not going to read all of it, but I want you to see this here in verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so how does it happen? It is through the Holy Spirit. Spirit is God the Holy Spirit that transforms our hearts. He is the one who causes our hearts to change. That's what Nicodemus needed. That's what we needed as Christians. And that's what some of you need right now. And you might say to me, Mark, I see the Spirit in these passages, but I'm a little bit confused. What's going on with the water? What's going on with the wind? What is Jesus talking about? Let's talk about those things for a second. Let's first deal with the water. To help us understand what Jesus is saying, we're going to jump back into Ezekiel, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 27. This is what it says, therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations in which you have profaned among them. 
And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Now check this out. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Water here and in many other places in the New Testament is used as a symbol of the need for cleansing. In ancient Israel, better than we understand now, understood the need for cleansing. You look back at all those things in the Mosaic Law. And I think Jesus very well could have been thinking of these verses when he tells Nicodemus that what God is really concerned about when he's trying to express with the water, what he's really concerned about is that you have a need to be cleansed. Your heart needs to be changed. Your heart needs to be renewed. And it can only be done. Did you catch it? How's that going to happen? It's through the Holy Spirit. And a couple of bonus content that's free. Um, while we're here, I just want you to look at two things. Um, if you look at the start of this passage that we looked at, did you catch why God chooses to cleanse people's hearts? What does he say? Thus says the Lord God, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name. God chooses to cleanse primarily for his glory. Right? You've probably stood before God. I know I've stood before God and said, God, I am a horrible, rotten sinner. Why would you choose to save me? Why would you choose me to be born again? It was for his glory, first and foremost. The answer's bigger than that, but I think that is primary. And number two, I want you to see at the bottom of the text what it says there, that when the Spirit is put within you, it causes you to change your life. It causes you to change your behavior. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you guys have it backwards. You don't live differently so that you can be saved. You are saved by the work of God for his great name, and God comes to live inside you, and the result is that your life changes. But even that is only through his work, right? Because it's the Holy Spirit. The only things when our life changes, you can make a change on your own, and it's not good fruit. It's only good fruit when it's God changing you, when it's God working through you. And so when it's God working through you, thus what's your purpose is to show people, hey, look, it's not about me. It's all about him. Because the only real and good change that's happening in my life is because of God. Our goal is to bring glory to God. What about the wind? We won't spend as much time on this one. Um, we'll, we'll kind of summarize it. John MacArthur does a good job. He says this. Jesus' point was that just as the wind cannot be controlled or understood by human beings, but its effects can be witnessed, so also it is with the Holy Spirit. He cannot be controlled or understood, but the proof of his work is apparent where the Spirit works, there is undeniable and unmistakable evidence. As we continue in these questions, the Nicodemus is asking Jesus the next thing that he basically asks them is, how do you know this is true? 
How do you know that what God requires of me is to be born again? And that's the only way that I can see the kingdom of God. This is basically what he asks them in verse 9. And then if Jesus gives us an answer here again in verses 11 through 13, I want you to look at the text. Look at what Jesus is telling Nicodemus. He says, we speak of what we know. We bear witness to what we have seen. Jesus is standing in front of him, and he's trying to tell him, Nicodemus, I'm the preexistent one. I have no beginning. I have no end. I am the I am. He's trying to tell him, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And in the beginning, he was with God. He's saying, I am the Word. I am God. This is how I know what God requires. And so what does God require? God requires that we be born again by his work and his power if we are to see the kingdom of God if we are to be with God and we need God desperately because Jesus is going to lay out for Nicodemus what all of us already feel in our souls that we all of us in this room at one point we were apart from God and as people right we had existence right Colossians 1 because of God's grace right but we don't have life if we are apart from God, right? Remember, remember, think back to when you were apart from God. We don't have joy apart from God. We don't have hope apart from God. We don't have unshakable peace apart from God. And I could go on and on and on. And those of you who are Christians, remember what that is like. And we also, I think as Christians, we experience reminders of that reality when we drift from God, when we drift in obedience from God. And for those of you who aren't Christians, I think if you're really honest with yourself, you would know that to be true in your soul right now. But there is good news, isn't it? And there's good news in what God has done. And this is why we talk about the gospel over and over and over again, because it's such good news, right? The gospel means good news. Many of you um, know what's going on in Turkey. Some of you may have seen this interview. There was an um, interview done on the news, and they interviewed a Turkish lady who was trapped beneath the rubble in her apartment for four and a half days. She was breathing. She had existence, but she was trapped. She didn't really have life. She said in the interview that she considered herself, even though she was breathing, to be dead. Until all of a sudden, the workers tore through that tremendous pile of rubble in order to save her. Someone else came down to save her and give her life. And in the interview, she described it as being born again. This is what Jesus has done for us. We were dead in our sins. Right? We, we had existence, but we were dead in our sins, trapped beneath our sin, separated from God, no power to do anything on our own to save ourselves. She tried. We've tried in our lives. It doesn't work. But then in steps Jesus. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man Jesus, be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God 
so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is good news, is it not? It's good news. Our rebellion against God was rightly punishable by death. And yet Jesus comes as the perfect son of God to die in our place, but he doesn't stay dead. He comes back to life. And what he does is he demonstrates himself to truly be the son of God. And he demonstrates himself to have the right and the power to forgive sins. And in the resurrection, we have the right and the power of Jesus to offer eternal life, to be with the son of God that he's demonstrated himself to be. Do you see that? And this is the good news of the gospel, that it's not by our effort, it's not by our skill, it's not because of our intelligence, it's not whether you swear or don't swear, drink or don't drink, watch this, don't watch that, do this, don't watch that. We were justified by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We need to repent, right? That means to turn, go the other direction, of our sin and believe and give God the throne of our lives. And here's the best news. And I want you to listen to this, Christians, in case you've tapped out. Because all of this is for you too. It's this. The best news of the gospel is that we get God. We get God himself. God is the goal of the gospel. Look at 1 Peter 3.18. What does it tell you? It's going to say, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Right? Brief synopsis of the gospel. What was the purpose in him doing that? That he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. And so this produces a question in you that I want to ask you. Do you enjoy God? What do you love about God right now? Or do you only enjoy what God has given you? Because there's a big difference. There's a big difference between loving Him and just loving what He's done for you. It's great to be forgiven of our sin, right? To be released from that guilt. We can say amen. That's a good thing, right? It's great to be justified before God and no longer have God see our sin, but instead see the righteousness of Jesus. That's good news. It's great to have the promise of eternal life. Yes, those are all good things, but those are only good things because they lead us to God. They're only good things. Heaven's only good because God is there. It's in his presence, in him alone. Do you enjoy God or the stuff that he's given you and done for you? Because the gospel is given to us that we might enjoy God. We are born again that we might enjoy God. We get a taste of it here and we're going to experience it in fullness in eternity. Next, let's look at the core problem that we face as humans. Here's the core problem. It's verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Jesus. And people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you are here and you're not a Christian, this is what you have to wrestle with. Will you continue to love your sin more than God. And 
And the second question that follows up is, is your sin truly satisfying your soul? Because I found only one thing satisfies my soul, and that is God and God alone. And if you are a Christian, I believe we have to wrestle with this concept in this verse because it's the same problem that will constantly plague us in our sinful bodies for the rest of our lives. There is only one throne in your life. There's only one thing at the top. Only one thing has preeminence. Is that God? I know in my life, I constantly have things that fight for the throne of my life. My comfort constantly wants to reign there. My love for my family constantly wants to reign there. And yet there's only one thing that should reign there. And when it reigns there, my life is never better. And it's God. And it's God alone. And this is why as believers, we constantly need to hear the gospel the gospel is also for Christians. You can turn with me or you can look on the screen at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 6. This is a very interesting passage. Um, we'll just read verses 1 and 2. It says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. And then what does he do in the rest of the verses? He goes on and he preaches the gospel. Look at those verses. He's preaching the gospel to Christians. And this isn't the only place that Paul does this. Romans 1, 13 through 15, Galatians 2, 20 to 3, 6, Ephesians 1 and 2, Philippians 1, 12 through 17. All of these places, Paul is preaching the gospel to Christians. As Christians, we need the gospel every single day. So often as Christians, we get it wrong, and we think that the gospel is simply a doorway that we need to grab and get through, and then we discard it. We don't need it anymore. The gospel, brothers and sisters, is not the doorway. The gospel, the brothers and sisters, it's the whole house. This is what we were called as Christians. Look, let's do some grammar. I know you're all really excited about doing some grammar on Sundays. Um, look at verse 1. What does it say? Which you received. What tense is that? It's past. In which you stand. What tense is that? Present. By which you are being saved. What tense is that? That's future. It's not just the doorway. It's the house. It's the whole house. The gospel we need is for Christians. Let me give you a few practical examples of this. We'll start off with a real softy. Um, how well do you deal with conflict? We're all perfect at it, right? We're good. We can go home now, right? When someone really hurts you as a Christian, there's a theological path that we travel on, and it's basically this. We have two options. One is either love is going to cover a multitude of sins, right? That is rooted in the gospel. Or the other option is that, um, and if, you, if love covers a multitude of sins, that means you're going to go, and you just, you just forgive that person right away, Right, because the indiscretion was small and um, you know that you've really forgiven that person because the relationship isn't altered in any way. Right? This is something that is wise to do with your spouse. We've been teaching our kids about it. Right? You don't need to bring up every little thing that someone's hurt you with. There are some times where you just love that person and love covers a multitude of sins. And yet there's other times where the indiscretion is bigger. Right? 
and then you need to go and approach that person because that's bothering you and it's hindering that relationship, right? And sometimes in those relationships, there are going to be consequences, right? We see that all through scripture, that there are consequences to our sin, but you also need to forgive that person, right? You actually don't get a choice, right? Forgiving's not an option. Jesus doesn't put that on the table, and it's because of the gospel, and there's two real ways that this works out. When someone sins against you, right, as a Christian, there's two things that this, ways that this works out. You go forgive them, right? Either their sin is covered by the blood of Jesus, just as Jesus' blood has covered your sins. Whether they are saved now or one day, he will choose to save them, or the other option is they receive their punishment from a just and holy God because he's their creator and it's his right to judge them. Either way, it is not your concern nor your place to punish them. It is dealt with by God because of the gospel. This is why the gospel is still important for Christians. How about number two? How do you deal with failure? How do you deal with not feeling like enough? How do you deal with weakness? Let's do these one at a time. First, failure. If it's a sin, right? Question, do you run to God when you sin? Whether or not you run to God demonstrates whether you really understand and live the gospel. Because so many of us, what do we do? We sin, and our natural inclination is to what? It's to run from God, right? Just like Adam and Eve. We try to clean things up on our own before coming back to God. Brothers and sisters, is that the gospel? Is that as God wants us to act as believers? The answer is no, it's not. He wants us to run towards him when we sin, run towards him when we fail. We're showing that we understand grace. We understand forgiveness. We understand mercy. That's how we demonstrate that we understand the gospel, when we run towards God when we sin. Because when we try to clean it up on our own, we're saying that there's something that we can do to deal with our sin. But what did we just look at? Who's the only one that deals with our sin? It's God. It's the Holy Spirit. What about number two? How do you deal with not feeling like enough? Many of us can struggle with insecurity. And if you're struggling with insecurity, please know that I think first God uses insecurity as a warning system. And what it's warning you about is this, that your identity is not secure. Is not secure in what God says about you, in what God thinks about you, about who you are in Christ. But believe it or not, um, insecurity, it's not only a warning system, but it's also an invitation John Bloom says this, when we feel insecure, God is inviting us to escape the danger of false beliefs about who we are, why we're here, what we should do, and what we're worth, and to find peaceful refuge in what he says about all those things. The more we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, the more we find it is the end of insecurity. Not the perfect end in this age, but the increasing and ultimate end. The ultimate answer to insecurity lies in the gospel. The reality of the gospel is that we are never enough on our own, right? And anything that tells you otherwise is a lie. But the glorious truth of the gospel is that Christ makes much of us in him. 
because of him. What about weakness? Many of you know this text from 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. We won't read it for sake of time. Let's do a little review. Why did God cause us to be born again? It was for his glory. What's the purpose of our lives as Christians? I've seen it plastered all over your church. It's to bring glory to God. So third question, how do you approach weakness? If we believe those first two things, then that informs us how we um, deal with weakness. We don't deal with weakness as something that is to be hid, something that is to be shameful. Look at the text there. But instead to be put on display, which is completely backwards against everything that goes inside of us. Why? Because it brings glory to God. Let me give you an example. When I was younger, I was addicted to pornography. I could hide that so nobody knows because that's a shameful thing to be, um, admit about yourself. But then God would not get the glory for changing my life in that area. Because believe me, I tried programs, I tried apps, I tried accountability. I'm not bashing those things. What I'm saying is this, there's only one thing that actually worked. I needed to love God more than the sin that was put in front of me. And until I had an enjoyment in God that was greater than the enjoyment of my sin, nothing else worked. And so when I put that on display and I show people my weakness and there was only one way out from something that is incredibly addicting, it's God and God alone that gets the glory, is it not? The next tip here is for parents and for grandparents. One of the best pieces of, of advice that I can give you as parents is to show your kids your weaknesses. I'm serious. One of the best things you can do in parenting is to show your kids your weaknesses. And the reason that you want to show your kids and your grandkids your weaknesses is because it's one of the primary ways that they will see God working in your life and know that he is real. So many people come to me and say, how do I show God to be real? How do I show my kids that God is at work? You first show it in yourself. There's not a more powerful testimony than a child um, to see that God is real than to look at mummy and to understand that she really lacks patience and yet she's been praying about it and God is growing patience in her or to see the anger that they see in daddy, but to see him come before God and admit that anger and to watch God change their dad. There's nothing more powerful than watching God at work in the life of the people closest to you. If you want your kids to know that God is real, you need to show them in your life first. And, and the only way that you can show them is if you show them that you're weak. Because if all you ever project is perfection and strong, then what you've said is there's no room for God to move. Because I've already got it all. Kids, I'm good. And that's not the truth of the gospel, is it? We are all a wreck and a mess, and we need Jesus desperately. One last one in the life of the church. I get to say this because I'm not at your church. Um, please don't be the person um, who complains about getting moved from your favorite small group in that you would never actually threaten the pastor, but it kind of comes along and it goes like this. 
I don't think I can do it. Like, I'm not, I, I, I'm not gonna share, right? I, I can't really get into that group because we haven't been together for three years, right? And they don't know me. They don't know my story. I gotta do that all over again, right? And it's, we can be honest. It's hard, right, to open up what we're asking people to do. What God asking us to do, is that easy? No. But are we really gonna come and say, I'm not going to be um, the kind of Christian that God wants me to be in Christian community, just because I won't share my weakness with anybody else, I only want to share it with five people, anybody else, no good, everyone else thinks I'm great. Is that what we want to portray? At the core of not wanting to share our weaknesses so that God can be glorified is pride. And all that I hear as a pastor, when people come to me with those petty complaints, is, hey, I'm really prideful, and I don't want to see God glorified. And that's hard, but it's the truth. Let's be Christians who are honest and open about our weaknesses. I'm not asking you to just go from zero to 100. You don't have to stand up here necessarily right off the bat, but start. Start with one person. Start with two people and let God grow you in that area. This is absolutely essential because when we do this, we demonstrate, we understand the gospel We'll close with this. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. The Son of Man must be lifted up, but whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you have not been truly born again, if you know that God has not changed your heart, given you spiritual life, actual life with God, I would encourage you to think long and hard about God, what God requires of you, and what God has done out of a tremendous, tremendous love for you that we sang about. And if you aren't sure, if you are born again, I would encourage you to read 1 John. There's multiple places you can look at the start of the book, you can look at the end of the book, um, where it says that this was written in order that you would know that you are saved. So if you aren't sure if you're saved, or there's someone in your life who's not sure if they are saved, I would encourage you to go through 1 John with them. And if you know that you are born again, I would encourage you not to think of the gospel as something that's needed only for a moment in time, but that you would recognize that you need God himself every day. Remember, he is the core of the gospel. He is the core of the good news, and that you would go and that you would live that out in a way that brings glory to him. Amen? We're going to invite up the worship team for one final song. So I don't want to distract from what Mark brought to us, I believe, by the grace of God. But I'd like to read one of the verses he referred to in his message and just let you quietly think, how has God called you to himself? 
think of the price that was paid to make it possible that you could come to God. Peter wrote these words, and he wasn't a polished guy before he was changed from the inside out by the Spirit of the living God. And he writes these words, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous Jesus, for the unrighteous us, to bring you to God. The creator of the universe loves us, and the gospel is necessary in my life every day. As a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, and for you who are still not there, open your heart. Do like the Ethiopian eunuch. Read the scriptures. Ask the good questions. Be humble enough to ask someone else to teach you what the gospel really is and ask for God to move in the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. He is longing to redeem you. Let's pray. Father, we have been blessed this morning by witnesses, testimonies that witness to your power working in their lives in different ways. We thank you for, for those two dads that were willing to go the hard road, as it were, and just stand and take the privilege of sharing their story. None of us have perfect stories, but you're the one who changes us. You're the one that draws us to yourself. So I pray, Father, this morning that we would just really be honest and open with you in humility and let you speak. Where do you want to be a part of the whole house, like Mark said? Not just the door, not just the way, but the truth and the life is what Jesus said he is. So, Lord, we pray for you to move mightily in our lives. And it's all for your glory. You are the resurrected Christ, seated at the right hand, and you're just waiting for the Father to say, go get your bride. And we wait for that glorious day. We pray in Jesus' most holy and powerful name. Amen. Amen. So don't rush out of here. For you who have not gone to the gym and have papers that need to be signed, please go to the gym and there will be elders there to help you.